1 Corinthians chapter 15, we begin with verse 1. This is the word of God. Again, let us hear it. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not me to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 26. We know that the Lord will add his own blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. 
It occurs to me just now, especially as I was reading verses 23 and 24, how applicable these verses would be to our Sunday school class this morning, where our brother Ron has been giving us the various um, uh, interpretations of the millennium. Verse 23, every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming, then cometh the millennium. Not. <laughs> no. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. So, just something that struck me in this reading right now. I want to call your attention to a number of things from this passage, but I'll take as my text the words in verse 20. I love this affirmation that Paul makes. Uh, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. But now is Christ risen from the dead. You might say that Paul certainly puts everything on the line in this chapter when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ is not risen, your faith is vain, he argues. You heard him say that twice. Your faith is vain, which is tantamount to saying your faith is empty. Your faith is void. Your faith has no substance. Your faith is meaningless. If Christ is not risen, your faith is vain. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is vain. If Christ be not risen then the apostles are proven to be false witnesses of God. If Christ be not risen, then they that are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If Christ be not risen, then we are yet in our sins. You get the idea, don't you, that this is a pretty important matter. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that those that have endeavored to crush and destroy Christianity have done so by trying to undermine the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. Had any of them succeeded, they would have succeeded really in dealing the death blow to Christianity itself because the whole thing just evaporates, so to speak, if Christ be not risen. Had Christ's body been produced or had some explanation been able to account for his empty tomb, then Christianity would have died and would never have spread the way that it did. But following all these contingencies about what would happen to Christianity if Christ had not risen from the dead, there comes the glorious affirmation by Paul in verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead? I love the analysis that one preacher gave about the fact of the resurrection. That fact is established by the truth that Christ's resurrection was predicted in Old Testament times, it was predicted in Old Testament scriptures, it was predicted by Christ himself. And the fact of the resurrection has not only been predicted, but it's been attested to by the authors of the gospel, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all provide the historical accounts of that great event. And the fact of the resurrection is explained then 
by the writers of the epistles, most notably the Apostle Paul, who in this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians explains how foundational the fact of the resurrection is to the Christian's faith. So it was predicted. It has been uh, uh, historically affirmed and it has been explained. A number of years ago, quite a few years now, as I look back on it, when I was ordained to be the minister of this church, and that was some 20 years ago now, the book of Acts was one of the very first books that I preached through as the minister of this church. And the thing that I pointed out over and over again when we made our way through that book was that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the driving force behind the early church. It wasn't because those early Christians were such great scholars and deep thinkers that the church of Christ advanced. It was because they knew and were convinced in the depth of their souls that Jesus Christ was indeed truly risen from the dead. And because they knew that Christ was risen, you couldn't suppress them. You could arrest them, you could scatter them, and you could put a number of them to death but you could not silence them, nor could you deprive them of their great joy that came in knowing that now is Christ risen from the dead. It seems, though, doesn't it, that with the passing of time over many years and centuries and millennia, that this magnanimous event of Christ's resurrection has lost some of the vitality that it produced in those early Christians. We have a tendency, I'm afraid, to take this glorious truth so much for granted that the reminder of it may do little more in the case of some Christians than to make them yawn. And Christians can sleep their way through sermons on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've heard it many times before, they say. Tell me something new. Tell me something that has greater relevance to what I'm facing today. Tell me something that will have a greater impact on my life. And when we begin to think that way, it only demonstrates that we have come to take the most spectacular event in all of history very much for granted. That's something, you know, that concerns me constantly about the people of God, not only with regard to the resurrection, but with regard to all the blessings that we enjoy as Christians. We have a tendency to take them so much for granted that there are times when we count them to be practically insignificant. Oh, shame on us when we reach that point. And so this morning, with the hope that the magnitude of this stupendous event may impact your souls anew and afresh, I want to raise and then answer a very simple question that we do well to ponder, and the question is simply this. How big an event 
is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How big a deal is it, really? How big an event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And my first answer to that question is just this. It's big enough to change the day. It's big enough to change the day. And by change the day, I mean that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a big enough event to change the day of worship from the seventh day of the week, where it had been set for thousands of years, to the first day of the week, which is where we find it now. It's that big of an event, enough so to change the day. Our shorter catechism question, number 59, asks, Which day of the seven hath God appointed to be the weekly Sabbath? And the answer, from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath, and the first day of the week ever since to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath. The event is big enough, I say, to change the day. And it's worth noting from this catechism answer that God did appoint the seventh day of the week, not from Mount Sinai, when the Ten Commandments were given, including the Fourth Commandment, to remember the Sabbath day. But our catechism answer says that the seventh day of the week was appointed from the beginning of the world. Not from the time of Moses and Mount Sinai, much earlier than that. The Sabbath, you see, is a creation ordinance. The example of which was first set by God himself. So we read in Genesis 2 and verse 3, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now it only makes sense that we see God setting the example for his creatures in this verse, for God did not find himself in need of rest. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And he never grows weary. So when we read at the dawn of creation that on the seventh day he rested from all the work he had made, he does so to set an example for, uh, well, for human beings especially. And so throughout the years and centuries and millenniums which followed, the seventh day of the week has always been recognized as a God-ordained day of rest and worship. And certainly throughout the history of the nation of Israel has this been the case. Sabbath desecration, you know, in the days of Israel was a sin punishable by death. Today, the whole matter of keeping the Sabbath is a matter of controversy, even among Christians. There are those that suggest that the command only pertained to the nation of Israel and has no place in this current dispensation of the church. Now, I know that in the past, I've suggested that the best way to discern how or whether a commandment of God is still applicable is to ask yourself a simple question, what is the theology behind the commandment? 
And that's not such a difficult thing to answer, especially as it pertains to the first table of the law. The theology behind the first commandment is the solitariness of God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, because there are no other gods beside the true and living God. So it's not hard to discern, is it, that that one still applies today? Now we jump down to the fourth commandment, which is the longest of them all, and comes with the longest explanation as to why it's to be observed. Let me read it for you from Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. And then comes the explanation. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. You can tell just from the reading of the command given at Sinai, can't you, that this predates Mount Sinai. And what then is the theology behind that commandment, the fourth commandment? I'd suggest to you that the theology or the attribute of God that is most clearly revealed in the fourth commandment is none other than the love of God. The words of Christ come to mind in Mark chapter 2 and verse 27 where we read, And he, Christ, said unto them, The Sabbath was not made for man, or the Sabbath rather was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God didn't have a, a, a list of arbitrary rules in the back of his mind, and then he wanted to create somebody that he could impose his rules on. I sometimes think that that's how we are tempted to think at times. No, this was done for man. The Sabbath was made for man. He who created man and knew what was best for man and what would enable man to live most efficiently and effectively ordained the seventh day to be a day of rest from his labor and to be a day of worship. Now, once you come to recognize the importance of the commandment and the history of the commandment, then you can appreciate how large an issue it would be to change the day that God himself had appointed. Mere men, you see, are not to trifle with the laws of God in that way. It's not our place to make any kinds of arbitrary adjustments to God's laws. So we read in Deuteronomy 4, in verse 2, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. And again in Revelation, near the very end of the book, and you could apply this to the entire Bible, as well as the book of Revelation, when we read, 
For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So how does it come about then that the day has been changed from the seventh day to the first day? Well, based on Scripture, we're led to conclude that apostolic example is the chief reason we recognize the day as being changed. Christ's resurrection appearance to his disciples found in John chapter 20 is found to be on the first day of the week when they're gathered together secretly and now doubting Thomas is in their midst. The day of Pentecost, interestingly enough, can be computed to have taken place on the first day of the week. Perhaps one of the clearest statements of apostolic example is given to us in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, where it says, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And if you would care to go back and read that verse in its context, you would discover that Paul arrived at Troas a whole week earlier, skipped right over the seventh day in order that he could gather with them on the first day of the week. Let me add something here. I had to kind of pencil this into my notes because I almost forgot it. We read from Matthew chapter 28 a little earlier in the service. Uh, Look at that chapter with me now, if you would, briefly. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1. Our authorized version reads it this way. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. It's kind of a translation enigma to me why just about every uh, translation of our English Bible, whether it be the authorized version, the ESV, the NIV, uh, what have you, uh, it doesn't seem like any of them, apart from uh, what is called Young's literal translation, Young, you may be familiar with him. He created a concordance that goes kind of uh, along with Strong's Concordance, a brilliant linguistic scholar, and he has provided a translation of the scripture in which he strives to be even more literal than, um, than, than general translations. Listen to, to the way uh, Young's literal translation reads In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1, it says, And on the eve of the Sabbaths, plural, at the dawn, toward the first of the Sabbaths, plural, 
came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Did you catch that? On the eve of the Sabbath, at the dawn, toward the first of the Sabbaths. Right, you look at a little, a literal rendering of that verse, and it seems to me that you've really got a pretty strong case there exegetically for saying the day was changed from the seventh to the first day. And when the matter is considered as to why the day was changed, why the Jewish tradition of resting and worshiping on the seventh day of the week was changed to the first day of the week, the obvious answer is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ's resurrection, you see, is that big of a deal. Calls for the changing of the day. Think about it for a moment. What are some of the most momentous events you can think of that have taken place in your lifetime? And how do those events compare with the phenomenon of Christ rising from the dead? And then carry the thought uh, not only to events in your lifetime, but to events that have taken place throughout the history of civilization. What comes close to comparing to such a spectacular miracle as Christ's resurrection? And without going down a list now of monumental events in world history, I'll simply suggest to you now that nothing comes close to comparing with this glorious truth that now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. I am aware, of course, as probably you are too, that there is a cult, a so-called Christian cult, although I'm hesitant to use that phrase because it's, uh, it's a contradiction, a Christian cult. But you know what I mean? A cult that claims to be Christian and insists, and in fact names themselves after the belief that the seventh day of the week should still be observed as the day of rest and worship appointed by God. They'll go so far, if you look into them a little bit, as to looking upon first day Sabbath observance as the mark of the beast. They go that far in their teachings. Perhaps the best apologetic to be used on the members of this cult would be the simple and glorious proclamation that Christ is risen from the dead. Ah, they say, but we're to worship on the seventh day, to which I reply, did you hear what I just said? Christ is risen from the dead. He arose. Christ arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. And if you're going to say to that, yeah, but, then I'm coming back and saying, you don't get it. You have failed to grasp how momentous an event that is, that Christ rose from the dead. 
Oh, let the magnanimous and spectacular and glorious truth and meaning of that sink into your soul, and you won't be able to help but conclude that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is big enough, a big enough event to change the day. But let's move on to consider next in answer to the question, how big an event is the resurrection of Christ? Secondly, it's big enough to conquer death. It's big enough to conquer death. That makes it a pretty big deal, I'd say, wouldn't you? The resurrection of Christ is a big enough event to conquer death. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 21 now, Paul tells us, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. By man came death, by man came the resurrection of the dead. And by man uh, in view, and Paul is very deliberate here, the man in view, of course, is Christ, And it's appropriate, very appropriate, that Paul refers to Christ in this verse as a man. For had not Christ become a man, he couldn't have died. God can't die, you see. God doesn't die, God can't die. Without taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul by which he became a man, he could not have died. God can't die, but the man Christ Jesus can and did. And even the man Christ Jesus could not have died without voluntarily submitting to death. So in John 10 and verse 17, we read these words from Christ, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. So we might say that by the power of his resurrection, Christ conquered death itself. I think it would be more precise to say, however, that it was by his death that he conquered death. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the author of that epistle writes, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Through his death, then, he destroyed the devil, who is here credited as having the power of death. Through Christ's own death, you can say, he took that power from the devil. There's a verse that I love in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. I've used this text at uh, more than one funeral when I've been called on to preach at a funeral, especially if it's a a stranger, someone I don't know. I find this to be a good text to reflect on. 
2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, Christ is said to not only him, not only to destroy him that had the power of death, but to have abolished death itself. Listen to the words of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, speaking of Christ, who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now men who only know to walk by sight rather than by faith might wonder how such a statement can be given by Paul. What? Christ has abolished death? Well, why then do men still die? And why do Christians still die? And in order to answer that question, you have to know what death really is. Death, you see, is much more than the severing of the soul from the body. That's physical death. But that's only one aspect of it. Death, in its essence, you could argue, is separation. Separation, not only soul from body, but perhaps more importantly, separation from God. That's death. That's why we recognize men today as being spiritually dead. They no longer enjoy the presence of God the way they did when they were originally created. Such is their separation of God today that men even question the very existence of God. And when a man, uh, a skeptic, if you will, challenges you to prove to him the existence of God, what he's really telling you is that he's spiritually dead. He'd have to be to even raise such an absurd question. Can you prove to me that God exists? Well, I could if you weren't biased against him. Oh, but I'm not biased against him. Oh, I beg your pardon, but I believe the Bible rather than you. You are biased against him. And you will not allow the obvious to speak to you. If you didn't have a bias against him, you couldn't possibly raise the issue as to whether or not he exists because everything around you shouts at you that he exists. And everything within you testifies that he exists. It's only a symptom of spiritual death for a man to even raise the question as to the existence of God. So that's spiritual death. And then there's eternal death where men in hell will be forever separated from the grace and love and mercy of God and made subject to the punishment that his justice calls for. So these two aspects of death, spiritual and eternal death, Christ has abolished. There is no more separation from God to those that believe in Jesus Christ. And even physical death has been snatched away from the devil and now must serve Christ by escorting Christ's people into Christ's presence at the time that God appoints.
O Christ hath abolished death. So technically you could say that Christ has destroyed death by his own death. And how do we know he was successful in his accomplishment of destroying death by his own death? Well, we know so by the truth that now is Christ risen from the dead. That's how we know that his accomplishment is successful. The resurrection proves that he's conquered death. Now think about that for a moment. How big an event is the resurrection of Christ? Well, you might measure the largeness of it by comparing it to death itself. How big an event is death? Death has held sway over man ever since man fell into sin. This is a point that's indisputable. Whatever else men may disagree about, there's no disagreement on this point that all men die. From the most famous to those that are the least known, from the richest to the poorest, from every walk of life and every tribe and people and nation on earth, no one can take exception to death. I'm quite fond of reminding people of this at funerals too, especially when I'm speaking to an audience of strangers and I say to them, you and I may have a lot of disagreements. We may disagree about politics. We may disagree about sports. We may disagree about the weather. Here's something we do not disagree with, even though we're complete strangers to each other. All men die. We know that, don't we? It's indisputable. It's a large event, death. There's no denying it. Pretty hard to find, isn't it, uh, Someone that you could label, I suppose, uh, an atheist toward death. Now, I don't believe in death. Um, I suppose you can find some people who, through some twisted form of philosophical speculative reasoning, may say that. But practically speaking, no man denies it. We all know it. It's that big of a phenomenon. And such a phenomenon as death brings bondage. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Men were all their lifetime subject to the bondage of the fear of death. So when you recognize how big a deal death itself is, then you positioned yourself to recognize how big an event the resurrection of Christ is. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. I hope by now you're beginning to see and appreciate anew and afresh that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a pretty big deal. It's a monumental event. There's nothing bigger, perhaps nothing more important. It's big enough to change the day. It deserves a day of its own, a weekly day of its own not just an annual day of its own. It's far greater than the greatest phenomenon in all the world throughout all time, which is tantamount to saying that it's greater than death. There's one more answer to the question. How big an event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? One more answer that I want to consider. 
It's big enough to set Christ apart from all others. It's big enough to set Christ apart from all others. I perhaps should have added the opening verses from Romans to our reading this morning. Let me read those verses to you now. This is at the very beginning of Romans now. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Did you get that? Do you see how those verses take into account both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ? He is of the seed of David according to the flesh. There's his humanity. And he is declared to be the Son of God with power. There's his deity. And this is according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You could say, based on these verses in Romans, that Christ's resurrection resurrection proclaims that he is the son of God and the son of man. And that means, doesn't it, he's unlike any other. There is no world ruler that can come close to comparing with him. There is no religious leader that can compare to him, not Mohammed, not Confucius, or Buddha, or any other false gods or religious figures. There is quite simply no one like Jesus Christ. His resurrection sets him apart And I can't conclude without saying that his resurrection vindicates the work that he's done. Or more simply, his resurrection vindicates the gospel. We read at the beginning of this sermon the opening words of 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Not only does his resurrection vindicate his identity as the Son of God, but it also vindicates his atoning death. It proves that the sacrifice of himself was acceptable to his Father. It proves that the gospel is true, that salvation is real, and that eternal life is the portion of all those that believe in him. So Paul writes in Romans 10 and verse 9, and this is so important now. You may know this. This may be very familiar. Some of you need to pay very special attention to this verse I'm going to read now. Romans 10 and verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. 
So tell me this morning, dear believer in Jesus Christ, how big an event is the resurrection of Christ? Is it merely some sort of superstitious myth that we give some sort of religious assent to as Christians? Or is it monumental beyond all comprehension? I'd submit to you that it's big enough to change the day. It's big enough to conquer death. And it's big enough to set Christ apart from all others in terms of who he is and what he's done. Oh, may this glorious truth so fill and thrill our souls this morning that we launch out into this new week in that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we do so with grateful hearts, grateful that Jesus Christ came, that he lived, that he died and was buried, and that he rose again from the dead. And we thank thee, O Lord, for what his resurrection bears witness to, the truth that he is the Son of God, the truth that his, his atonement has been accepted, the truth that death has been conquered and now serves Christ. O Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us not to take this monumental event for granted, but may we know the power of it in our own lives as we endeavor to follow after Christ with all our hearts. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.